Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroke. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today I'm joined by Nate Gallen, office managing partner of the law firm Hogan Lovells in Silicon Valley. Nate has spent his entire career here in the Valley working with the tech community, representing all flavors of entrepreneurs from startups to the major corporations we know of every day, we hear about them every day in the media, as well as the entire ecosystem of the investor community that funds and supports these innovators. Nate, welcome to M&A Masters, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. There's a lot of legal groundwork that needs to be laid way before owners and founders can even start thinking about an exit. And Nate, you were featured uh, as a speaker in the latest Silicon Valley M&A forum where you presented an informative briefing on the topic that needs to be brought to the attention of owners and founders planning an exit, and that's drag-along rights. Now, to the audience, I'll let Nate explain this provision, uh, which is routine in the venture capital and private equity worlds, but it may not be top of mind elsewhere, and that's why he was highlighted recently and why I wanted him to come on and share his uh, his knowledge with you on this. But before we drag Nat, Nate into you know that uh, conversation, let's start here with Nate. Why don't you give everybody a little bit of context? Is how did you get to this point in your career? Why did you pick tech, you know, the law, and then tech law, and then end up here in Silicon Valley? Yeah. So yeah, I've been here in Silicon Valley my entire legal career, which is a, about 20 years. It'll be 20 years this summer. Uh, for prior to my time at Hogan Lovells, I spent 15 years at another local uh, Silicon Valley law firm. But my whole career has been focused on working with technology companies and investors, and to a lesser extent, life sciences companies and, and investors, because I wanted to be part of the economy that was creating new ideas, creating jobs and was really helping to expand the economy and provide a novel uh, products and services and, and uh, other uh, items to the, the community at large. I didn't want to work in traditional industries. I wanted to work with entrepreneurs and wanted to understand and be, parts of new, be a part of the new technologies that were coming into, into existence. And that hasn't changed in my 20 years. I look back on what I've experienced, and it's, it's, it's truly astonishing, the technologies and the platforms that we've seen come out of not just Silicon Valley, but the technology and life sciences community throughout the United States and in other parts of the world. So that's really what attracted me. And in M&A, my focus is on both M&A and equity transactions and venture capital and strategic investments, and as well as representing entrepreneurs. And that really gives me a firsthand look at the companies at working with entrepreneurs working with major corporations to buy companies from entrepreneurs and you really get your, your feet wet and uh, get to understand everything that's happening within the community while also being able to act as a business advisor and help from a financial perspective for both buyers and sellers in M&A to achieve their goals and in venture capital to help investors achieve their financial goals when they invest in new technologies and platforms. Well, Nate, you and I share a common passion, and that is we have an affinity for people out there, the entrepreneurs that, you know, start with nothing and create something and go from zero to one to two and help marry them with other parties that will get them from two to ten. And so it's a, it, it's a great, great 
place to be in and there's no better place in the world than right here in Silicon Valley while it is spreading elsewhere. But let's get to the topic here. What are drag along rights and why are they so important? Yeah, so, so drag along rights are something that's been in the venture capital and the private equity community for uh, certainly as long as I've been practicing and I'm certain before that. Uh, a, a drag along provision, it, it's a provision that's usually located in stockholders agreements, uh, occasionally in the bylaws, whereby the stockholders of a, of a company, of a target company, agree to vote in favor of and not oppose or hinder a sale of the company and to take any other action that's reasonably required to consummate a sale of a sale transaction, including if it's structured as a share purchase, to sell their shares in a third party to the third party in the transaction. So in other words, at the time that the that the venture investors make their investment in a company, well in advance of sometimes years in advance of an MA transaction or exit, the venture investors will often require that the parties to the stockholders agreements essentially all the preferred stockholders and typically most, uh, if not all the common holders, sign on to an agreement, a stockholders agreement that says, if in the future, the, the board and so either majority or supermajority of the, the stockholders vote in favor of a sale of a company to sell the company to a third party, then the other investors that are parties to that agreement, whether or not they agree with the sale to that, that, that sale transaction, are bound contractually to vote in favor of the transaction, not oppose the transaction, and if required, to tender their shares or take other action to ensure that the sale transaction takes place. So it's a way of ensuring that potentially uh, potential dissenters or those who would challenge or oppose an M&A transaction will be contractually bound to vote in favor of and go along with the transaction. So you can't have the tail wagging the dog if one lone dissenter wants to hold up, one dissenter can't gum up the deal. Exactly, exactly. And that, that gets into kind of the priorities and why, you know, why would investors or why would companies agree to such a, such a transaction? And if you think, or to such a, such a provision, if you think about it, there are reasons why the investor would want it and there are reasons why a company founder might want it especially if you have a dispersed shareholder base or you expect that you'll have a dispersed shareholder base, there are oftentimes competing interests that look differently on a sale of a company. Depending on the liquidation waterfall, which in, by that I mean the, the capital structure and who, which series and classes of shareholders get paid first uh, versus last in a sale transaction, there may be competing interest in, in competing visions as to whether a particular M&A transaction is in the best interest of the shareholders. So what this does is it ensures that that kind of debate doesn't happen at the time that the sale transaction is in front of you. It happens, uh, it, it essentially, it, 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 it forecloses that debate uh, subject to the parameters that are actually negotiated in the drag-along, and that's often where the devil meets the details. And with these other so the benefits really on this are this will accelerate make the, make the decision a lot cleaner with with the major shareholders and you can't have one party who may have a, an opposing viewpoint or see different see things differently for whatever reason they're not going to slow this down uh are there any other benefits along with that 
Correct, correct. So if you, if, if you think about, let's take the merger structure, which is one of uh, several different acquisition structures we use when buyers are acquiring uh, companies. The, the merger agreements will have a condition that the stockholders approve, some specific percentage of the stockholders approve the transaction as a signing condition and as a closing condition. So in order to actually close the, the, the transaction, uh, there will typically be a condition that no more than a small number, a small percentage of stockholders have dissenters or appraisal rights under law. And those are, depending on the state, whether California, Delaware, or otherwise, dissenters or appraisal rights are creatures of state law that provide a judicial mechanism whereby shareholders who, are, who, who do not believe that they are getting fair value in the transaction, in the merger, can, uh, if, they, if they adhere to a very specific time schedule that's pre- prescribed by state law, can have their shares valued in a court hearing, uh, can have them valued as to whether or not the shares are more valuable or less, potentially, than the, the deal value. And that is, that is, uh, there, there are a number of headaches associated with that. Because that is something that can happen following the closing of the transaction. So buyers want to know that there are very few, usually under five percent of the shareholders of the of the outstanding shares are eligible to have dissenters claims. If you have a drag along, it allows the the sellers to much more easily, the target company to more easily satisfy that closing condition. And that's something that for a founder that wants a deal done or that a venture capital investor or a strategic investor, that is a preferred holder that wants a deal done, it allows those who, in, who are in favor of the deal to ensure that those small holders can't gum up the closing by having the company fail to satisfy that you know, minimum appraisal rights closing condition. Uh, similarly- You could actually- Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. You, you could have a situation that if you don't have drag along rights where a small minority could uh, really harm the deal post-closing which now everybody gets harmed. Right, right. And what happens is if there are post-closing, and if there are post-closing appraisal claims, uh, typically a buyer will require that the, that, the, that the company's shareholders, former shareholders, the target's former shareholders, have to indemnify the buyer for any claims arising out of those dissenters' claims. So to the extent that the buyer has to hire Third, has to hire counsel to uh, litigate uh, an appraisal rights claim in Delaware court, those costs would ultimately be borne by the former target shareholders. And so the, uh, through the indemnification process, and those former target shareholders will ultimately receive less deal consideration because essentially they are funding the uh, legal uh, fees of the buyer's counsel in defending that appraisal rights claim. So that's insult to injury. You're the seller. You want to sell. You have a buyer that wants to buy. You've got these small percentage of dissenters that are going to hold this up. And if it's if it if they're successful in slowing this down and causing legal action, then you, the seller, get to pay for all this, whichever way it goes. So that's a that's, that's correct. A real negative. That's a real and, and, negative and, and, out there. And that's that's the outcome. If if the buyer ultimately chooses to close. In spite of there being a significant number of potential, or I should say, of shares available to press appraisal claims, 
at the closing. The, the other is if the closing condition is not satisfied. So, for instance, if the closing condition says there, there are no more than 5% of outstanding shares of the target uh, are eligible or have are eligible to to bring uh, appraisal claims at or after the closing, if that closing condition is not satisfied, the buyer can walk away from the deal. So it's not just if the buyer closes the deal, there's an indemnification risk where the the sellers ultimately receive less total consideration because of indemnification claims. It it actually can be a deal risk where the buyer could walk away. Uh, That Hopefully that wouldn't happen, but the, that, that is always a risk. So you have not just financial risk, but actually risk of getting the deal done if the closing condition is not satisfied. Yeah, that, that's our Armageddon for sellers is uh, getting a deal, you know, getting it signed and then not failing to get it closed and failing to get across the goal line. Then you have right. to go after all that time, energy and passion has been used up. You've got to go back to the market or back, uh, back out. And that, that's just uh, worst case scenario on the sales side. Um, right. Are there any limitations to drag along rights? Yes, or is that's this a good just question. a great magic bullet? It, no, that's a very good question. The, the, typically, uh, the standard negotiated drag along rights usually have exceptions. So the drag along can be triggered by a vote of some majority or supermajority of the stockholders, but there are usually conditions to enforcement. And the conditions vary depending on the, the, the deal you're negotiating. Uh, but typically, there are a number that you see, and I would say are generally customary in venture capital transactions. And you can actually find a lot of these. You can find all of them in the National Venture Capital Association forums, which are available online at nvca.org. The NVCA has model venture capital investment documents for, uh, for the entire suite of documents you'd use, including the what we call a voting agreement, which is the form of stockholder agreement that typically includes the drag-along. And the, the types of conditions are, for instance, that the proceeds in an acquisition are allocated to the stockholders of Target in accordance with the liquidation waterfall in the Target Certificate of Incorporation, that there are limits, uh, limitations on the scope of representations and warranties that a target shareholders uh, must personally give in, a definitive in, in, the, in the acquisition agreement. And if the scope of the reps and warranties goes beyond that, then essentially that can frustrate or, or, or negate the ability to enforce the drag along. There are other provisions around caps on liabilities for, for on the liability of a stockholder of a target. And depending on the type of transaction, uh, when and if at all a particular target stockholder can be liable for uh, fraud or other claims by another stockholder. So there's a, it's a fairly detailed set of exceptions, and you really have to look through them and navigate them uh, closely to make sure that, that the exceptions do not frustrate. You know, the exceptions, when you compare them to the deal you're negotiating, do not uh, invalidate the ability to enforce the drag along. All right. Now, in a practical sense, how do the drag along rights, how do they work or how are they triggered? Is it just, you, you've got, if you have them set up, if you've got a competent attorney that helps you get your bylaws set up, you've got them in your agreement and everybody's aware, well, everybody's aware of them, but it, they're in there as you go forward on, on a, um, uh, on a, on a acquisition. Who can trigger the drag along rights or do they just, is it an automatic provision that just, they're here, they work, move forward. 
How does how does yeah. it you know in a practical sense work? Right. So the drag along would be in the the voting agreements that I just mentioned, and you would have all of the preferred investors typically, and many if not most of the common investors, uh, signing on as parties to the agreement. As the company goes through successive rounds of financing, round Series A, Series B, you would continue to, to add parties to that agreement to make sure that you're capturing the universe so that you have 100% or close to, as close as possible, 100% drag-along coverage. When the deal, when there's an actual sale transaction before you, what there are different ways it plays out, but usually the, the company has a good sense either through normal communications, regular communications or otherwise, over whether stockholders have been on board with the company, whether they're friendly, whether or not they're not friendly. So that's kind of just know, know your, your, your stockholder base. Second is you, typically you have the major investors sitting around the board table and oftentimes they are, or some subset of them is sufficient to trigger a drag along. So, if you've gone through successive rounds of financing, you may have three or two or three or maybe even more venture capital firms or strategics on there that collectively can trigger the drag along. Uh, so what you would do is you would t have the board approve a transaction. You'd have the, the, the specified or required shareholders approve the transaction that triggers the drag along. And then between signing and closing, you would go out, reach out to the other stockholders uh, with an information statement, with disclosure of the transaction, solicit their consent to approve the transaction. And it's through that solicitation process is, is usually where that interim period between signing and closing is where you would really start to shake out the, the, those who are in favor versus those who are not. And, and oftentimes, if it's a deal where people are making a relatively good uh, return on their investment, it, it's not so much people opposed to it as it is logistics, you often have people who are out in a boat for a month and you can't reach them. That can often be a problem. Where the, the brass tacks are is when it's a deal where not everybody's making money or not everybody's getting the return that they expect to get. And that's where you start to have challenges and where between that, you, know, you want to know before you do the solicitation how enforceable is the drag along relative to the deal that you've cut with the buyer. But once you go out and do the solicitation, then you really have to kind of look at your drag, drag along and figure out who, uh, against whom you need to enforce it. And the drag along is enforced because it, one of the key practice points is a drag along has to have, should have a, 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 proxy, a proxy in a power of attorney, whereby the proxy in the agreement will state that if an opposing share, if a shareholder opposes a transaction but is subject to the voting to the drag along, and that shareholder, if that shareholder is obligated under the drag along to vote in favor of a transaction, even if he opposes it, the proxy is, is granted typically to the company's CEO or a member of the board. The proxy holder, the, the CEO, can vote that reluctant shareholder's shares uh, in his place and in favor of the transaction. So you'd have a proxy and it would be coupled with a power of attorney that which grants that CEO, the proxy holder, the ability to sign a consent on behalf of the reluctant shareholder to approve the transaction. So that's the teeth of enforcement. And if there's no proxy or, or power of attorney, enforcement's much harder because you would have to you'd have to to, to sue the, the the reluctant shareholder in court to enforce the drag along provisions, which is a much more cumbersome process rather than relying on a proxy and a power of attorney. 
Yeah, and it speeds it up, too, because if uh, somebody just decides, well, I'm just not going to vote, I won't dissent, I just won't vote, and I'll try to slow you down there, they've got the the, the proxies in, in place, and it's been signed off on with the power of attorney. So it's uh, exactly. it's well-supported, very, very, very well-buttressed uh, provision. Is there, I mean, uh, is there a reason not to have Dragalon rights? I can only, the only thing I could ever picture is if you got, you know, a sole shareholder uh, with one investor and they're both, you know, uh, equal investors or something. But is there any situation where Dragalon rights shouldn't be there? The only instance is if <laughs> the term I use is the, the, the dragger or the dragged. If, if you are, <laughs> if you are likely to be the dragged, it obviously does not make sense for you to, to, to put a drag along in place. Uh, it's often hard to determine, especially if it's a later stage company based on the, based on the capital tape, capitalization table, whether you will be the dragged or, or the dragger. But typically the, it's, it's lead investors that want the drag along. And especially if you are a follow-on investor or uh, maybe more likely a small investor as part of a larger syndicate, it's, it's more likely that you would be dragged rather than dragging. But it, it's, it's hard to say, and I would say as a general matter, as a general practice point, having a drag along in place is, is, a, good, is a good thing to have. Uh, I, I, I'd say nine times out of 10, the scenarios I see, whether I'm representing an entrepreneur or representing a venture fund, a drag along is a good thing to have in place. Well, now in cases where a company, and this this would happen with companies that probably haven't had initial funding, they haven't had a seed round, they've just pretty much uh, opened up and been self-sustaining their entire uh, duration and maybe haven't needed to look at their bylaws that often. They may not have the drag along rights provision in there. Uh, what can you do? Can They can be added on. How How, how does that work? Yeah, so if it's a non-institutionally backed company, if it's if it's self-funded or bootstrapped, uh, you, we do see those a fair amount, and a lot of times it's friends and family. So you've got a lot of of investors, or you have a number of investors, and that may or may not be well versed in venture capital investing. That that can present its own challenges from just an expectations mm -hmm. perspective, but. You can always put a drag along in in place later on after you have a stockholder base in place. The challenge is you won't be able to get anybody to sign up to you. You won't. You can't enforce a drag along on somebody who hasn't consented to 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 be parties to that agreement or to be bound by those provisions. So if you've got, you know, if if you don't realize until after you have thirty investors that you need a drag along, well, you need to get each one of those thirty investors. To, to, to sign up to an agreement that includes a drag along. Uh, they, you, you can't force it on an investor without his or her consent. Well, it may be easier to do that if there's nothing on, on the horizon right then. And so if you notice that you don't have it, you think you should get it, and there's no deal on the horizon, it might be easier to get agreement to get, you know, get all those bases covered. It's just one of those things that you really don't want to have to start chasing down uh, when you're you're on the clock to try to stage up your company for uh, for an acquisition, so exactly. that's why I think it's it, it, this is just one of those issues where again it, it's like if you're building a house and not thinking about uh, you know where the rain gutters go, it, it's a minor thing because everybody's thinking about kitchens and roofs and windows and garages and stuff, and 
these are the types of things that while they're not right top of mind, they're easy to address, I think, with a professional that can, you know, fast track you through the process to check and see if you've got them. And if you don't get them in there, I think it it just pays dividends down the road. If if not in dollars, uh, it does in time and quality of life because you're not stressed out uh, with, with one of these things that's easy to overlook if you don't have an expert uh, looking at this. Nate, if we've got a lot of listeners out there that, you know, want to look more into this and maybe just to see for themselves if they've got it or uh, what it would take to get it. You're the guy to go to. How can our listeners reach you? Yeah, Patrick, the best way to reach me is you can email me. My email address is ngallon, that's N-G-A-L-L-O-N, at hoganlovels.com. And you can also contact me through uh, phone. You have uh, my, my bios on the web. You can always find my bio and contact information on the web. I am uh, the managing partner at Hogan Levels in Silicon Valley. And you can reach me here in the office here. You can come come by anytime. We're here in Menlo Park and we are embedded in the the venture capital and the M&A communities and would uh, certainly love to hear from anybody that has questions or would like to discuss this further. Very helpful, Nate. Again, you took uh, a real technical legal uh, issue and brought some life to it, which is what you did at the forum. That's why I thought it's great value to our audience. So thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks uh, for talking.